Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, and in this episode, I'm speaking once again to Frank McIndoo. As consistent listeners to the show will know, Frank appeared in the podcast in September last year. We covered in that episode how Frank manages an Australian equities portfolio over the last 13 or 14 years to great success. In fact, since we last spoke to Frank over the last seven or so months, the fund is up around 22% versus a market of about 13, which makes the all-important five-year rolling return at 6.8% per annum. We talked to Frank about a number of trends and how he's thinking about markets at the moment. We talk about growth versus value as a style difference in the market at the moment, how he's thinking about infrastructure assets and in particularly the airports and toll roads that he has some exposure to. And we also talked to Frank about the headwinds in his view facing the large Australian domestic banks. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I certainly do. Spending time with Frank is very valuable for me. Please remember, this is not designed to be, nor is it, specific financial advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek advice before making any investments. Please do, however, remember to provide feedback. Remember to subscribe and share the podcast. It's been great. As we approach 100 episodes, it's been fantastic with you all and the feedback that I've been getting. Please email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. And it goes without saying, a big shout out to Josh, Josh Clark, my son, who's the editor of these podcasts all the way through. Thank you very much. He's doing a great job. And I also need to acknowledge Tom Oriel an associate who works with me and in many ways produces these episodes. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Enjoy the episode. Frank McIndoo, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Good to be here. Frank, well, it's been seven months since we last spoke, um, and that was right in the depths of Sydney's lockdown and uh, COVID-19 in Australia. And of course, we've fared much better than uh, the rest of the world. Um, How have you been keeping? I've been pretty well. I'm bit sick of uh, continuing restrictions, but we all are, and it could be a lot worse. So I don't don't think we've got that much to complain about. Now, I didn't, uh, that wasn't a deliberate pun there, that it just occurred to me that uh, how have you been keeping uh, is kind of apt, <laughs> given that uh, the Coda Enduring Equities portfolio was the subject of our podcast that listeners would have, um, I, I'm sure they've listened to it uh, back in September last year, where we talked about your uh, direct Australian equities portfolio that you've been managing for some 14, 13 years now. Um, that's done very well. And we talked about the methodology and, and my, the numbers that I have is that since we spoke, it's actually been up 22% versus the market, which is 13%. And of course, seven months isn't the ideal um, time frame to think about these things. We had a, an episode yeah. Uh, a few episodes ago with Chris Cuff, who made, I thought, a really good point was the only number he concentrates on is the five-year rolling number. And of course, for your keep portfolio, that's been 16.8% versus a market of about 10. So congratulations and, and well done. Thank you. I mean, I look, I uh, very much subscribe to sort of that five-year view as being the critical one, although it's got to be said if after three years a stock isn't sort of behaving 
the way I, I want, I, you know, it's on, it's on the, it very much, I'm, I'm asking myself, is there something I'm missing? Um, you know, a single quarter, I don't care. A single year, I don't care as long as the management uh, seems to be sticking to what they've said they're going to do. But after three years, I'm, you know, if something's not going for three years, I'll start to think, you know, I'm, is there something I've missed? Uh, and be, be suspicious anyway. So I, I guess this goes to your point of um, uh, lethargy bordering sloth, which is a, a maxim, I think, from uh, Warren Buffett. But maybe you want to yeah. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, look, I think there is, um, there is so much noise. And if you've, if you've bought something for the long term and I don't put anything into keep that I don't hope at the time of putting it into it that's going to be there for five years plus. I mean, the longer the better, and the average period has been seven years. But at the point I put it in, I'm hoping for it to be five years plus. So uh, I am taking very much a long-term view, and you've got to expect that there will be noise along the way, which could be um, any number of things, macroeconomic uh, changes, uh, changes in, in the industry could take a while for a company's strategy to work. Things, you know, things don't work straight up necessarily, even if they're, they're brilliant strategies. So you, you've got to give things time. And so um, having decided that you really like a company and you like the strategy, um, it doesn't make sense to... Um, you know, chuck it out after a bad quarter. So, Frank, you you touched on noise uh, in the market. And, of course, you know, we see a lot of retail investors and even experienced investors that just can't help themselves with the emotion. There's a lot of data to suggest and show that, you know, the average ETF or just the market, a lot of investors don't even do as well as that because, they know that they want to buy when things are low and sell when things are high, but behaviorally they do the exact opposite. And the financial press based on advertising revenue is paid to be sensational um, and headlines sell. How do you avoid the noise that you spoke about, spoke about and remain focused? Well, I mean, the main thing is you've got to have, you invest in something because of a, uh, strong long-term thesis as to how the business uh, will behave. And really, uh, unless something makes you question the thesis, um, then you, you stick with it. So, um, you know, if you think in the long run, uh, travel is going to, people are going to enjoy travelling, uh, then you don't necessarily sell out of airports because of a short-term uh, interference with that, which could be through a recession. And, of course, we've had this extreme example of a pandemic. But we had, we've had things, many uh, episodes like this before, like there was a big downturn in air traffic because of the SARS uh, epidemic. And the Iraq war was an interruption to air travel as well. So these things, um, they do happen, but 
uh, you know, if the long-term average growth in air traffic is double GDP, which is what it tends to be, um, the fact that you have a bad year doesn't mean that you don't think airports are a good long-term investment. Well, you opened the door there, and it was one of my questions. Um, in terms of infrastructure and investment of infrastructure, noting that you have a bit of exposure to toll roads and airports, how are you thinking about those investments um, given where we're at in COVID? So with airports, I, I do think um, business travel will be affected. Uh, after the GFC, it took five years for business travel to return to where it was before. Um, and there's nothing that corporate treasurers love doing more than cutting costs by saying no travel. I mean, that just what all these show pony sales executives traveling around the country, that must be a waste of money. Um, so they um, they love cutting that sort of expenditure. Um, and I'm sure that's going to happen. Uh, and even more so now that people, you know, everybody has learned to use Zoom. And so that'll be another reason for the corporate travel, uh, the corporate uh, treasurer to say, oh, you can just Zoom. Now, we all know that Zoom does work for some things, but for other things, uh, it doesn't work nearly as well. But I certainly think it'll be many years before business travel returns to what it was pre-pandemic. On the other hand, I can imagine... Um, if we get to a stage where people uh, feel safe travelling, if they've had the, the vaccine, I think there's going to be an enormous surge in, in leisure travel. I can imagine, you know, the first 12 months, once people feel safe, could be a record year. I think everybody's going to want to do a bit of catch-up. bit of pent-up demand there in the system. And, yeah, I think so. And toll roads, how are you thinking about them, both domestically and uh, internationally? Um, well... I think they will, if anything, once, uh, you know, if there isn't a lockdown, um, toll road traffic is not that affected. Uh, it is, well, it depends which sort of toll roads, of course, there's the, the ones that commuters use and they will be affected until office workers are allowed to return in a normal fashion or are allowed and choose to return in a normal fashion. But I suspect they'll get back to normal pretty quickly in Australia. And in fact, to the extent that there's any residual nervousness about the safety of public transport, um, you know, maybe uh, those toll roads will actually do better for a while uh, if, there, if there's any residual nervousness. And certainly I can imagine the intercity toll roads may well do better for quite a long time because people won't feel like getting onto uh, crowded buses or trains or planes. They may prefer, you know, to drive if they can. And Frank, I, once, once the lockdowns are over. Frank, I, I noticed just changing slightly here to a separate part of the portfolio um, that's reasonably unique about it for an Australian equities portfolio to um, have none of the big four banks and very little exposure in the area um, is, is quite unique. Do you want to talk us through your thoughts in that area and, and why that is so? Yeah, well, I suppose, and remembering that this is, this is taking a five-year view, 
it doesn't mean that, you know, they might bounce back post-COVID if people think that the fears of bad debts were, were overdone and so on. But in the long run, um, so as compared to the glory days of, you know, probably the previous few decades, 80s, 90s and noughties, um, so through extra uh, capital requirements where they used to get maybe a return on equity of 18%, it's probably going to be more like 11 or 12. And they're only achieving that with enormous gearing. So most companies, if you look at a company and you want to see a high return on equity, there are very few companies, that are, you know, well, there are no companies, they're remotely as heavily geared as a bank. And what that means is, of course, that's a massive increase in risk. If you do have a recession, which may be no fault of the banks, um, they can have heavy losses. And if you're highly geared, you really feel those losses painfully. So I don't like the gearing. I don't like the falling return on equity. Um, I don't like the just ever-increasing regulation. So, you know, for years, they've just, you know, things like Basel II, for example, which have made it more and more difficult for them to service any number of areas um, in, a, in a profitable way on, on a return on equity basis. And in fact, you know, we at CODA see any number of private debt funds, and they are really just filling the gaps that have been left by banks because the banks no longer see it as profitable on a return on equity basis. Um, or they see it as risky because they can't have uh, a big enough portfolio scoring effect. So, you know, just barely a few months will pass without you seeing a bank selling off another line of business because they just don't think the risks are worth it for the return on equity. Uh, and they're just getting narrower and narrower. Um, and then even their core markets uh, of mortgage lending uh, and business lending, they're getting more and more competition from firms that are, you know, a fraction of the size and which don't have any of the legacy IT costs and so on. So you can have, you can have quite large non-bank lenders and they've got a couple of hundred employees. Uh, and it's just very hard to manage a firm of 30,000 employees, you know. You've probably got seven or eight layers of management. So uh, the people at the top are a million miles from the customers. How can they not be if they've got seven layers between them? And then all those seven layers, for them, success is probably a function of politics rather than how well they've looked after the customer because only the very bottom layer actually deals with customers. So I just think it's a really tough business these days. Um, and, you know, their size, which used to be an advantage, is increasingly becoming a disadvantage because they, they lag in IT. And every so often you'll read they've had to spend another billion on an IT rejig trying to, you know, marry disparate systems, but then, you know, getting the data across. I just think it's a terribly difficult business to run. 
And if it's such a difficult business to run, why would you invest in it? And for reference, have you held uh, uh, the Australian banks in your own portfolio or within this portfolio, um, you know, uh, over history? I think, yeah, there were, there were some banks in this portfolio in the very early stages, but uh, probably not for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same, the same goes for me. Now, one of the things that I saw since we last spoke pop into the portfolio that I sort of were, uh aha, that's a little unusual, was BHP. Um, Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I haven't been hearing your conversations as I often do on the floor, uh, given it's COVID and we're we're separated somewhat. Um, But I thought in the commodities space, it may have been something that was in the too hard basket, which which I've learnt is the biggest basket of all. Um, So I'm very interested in your thoughts and the investment thesis around BHP and seeing it pop in there as a position. Um, If you could let us know the rationale behind that, it would be appreciated. Yeah, now look, commodities are difficult uh, because, you know, the very long-term trend is for commodity prices to fall as technology makes it cheaper and cheaper to dig the stuff up. Um, And they certainly have become even less predictable than they used to be. I think it was 2016 uh, was I almost gave up on the sector completely because I think it was the 2016 where um, coking coal was supposed to go into oversupply and then the bureaucrats in Beijing decided they needed bluer skies for no doubt very sound political reasons. There was probably some uh, Communist Party meeting going on and so they... They made it increase the penalties for pollution, which meant suddenly people wanted really high-quality coking coal, and the price of coking coal trebled in a 12-month period. And I thought, gee, you know, when I'm, it's difficult enough to sort of look at the supply and demand, let alone the behaviour of Beijing bureaucrats. So it is difficult, um, and. The the reason, there are a couple of reasons. The first is, as it happens, um, BHP and, in fact, some of the other miners um, have very high cash flows at the moment. So so on, on a sort of basic, if you're looking at a cash flow valuation, that makes them look uh, quite attractive. Um, the second thing is that all the big mining companies, including BHP, um, seem to have acquired a discipline in capital allocation that they didn't have um, in previous decades. So they just haven't been spending up big on new projects. And what that means is there seems to have been significant underinvestment. And so what that means is we may well be in for a period of higher prices. This is what it seems to me. Um, for the next few years because of underinvestment over the last decade. Um, and probably the reason why I've been looking at it in part is just historically resources, particularly things like energy, have been very good for portfolio composition because they have a habit of going up when everything else goes down. So if there's a, if there's a burst of inflation, 
that tends to be good for commodity commodity companies, but bad for everybody else. If there's a Middle East crisis and the oil price suddenly rockets up, it's good for commodities, bad for everybody else. So in terms of what I'm always trying to do with this portfolio is not only to find individual investments, which I think will make money, but also to have a portfolio that will be less volatile than the rest of the market. I mean, you could put all your money in one very small tech segment and maybe you'd be right in terms of making enormous amounts of money. But if the volatility is extreme and investors just can't cope with it and then they sell out inevitably at exactly the wrong time, well, you haven't done anybody any good, least of all your investors. So I am always trying to look for things that will, uh, if you like, reduce the overall volatility of the portfolio. And look in the long term, if you look and look at the way portfolios behave, having some commodities in a portfolio has been a way to achieve that. Frank, talking about fast-growing technology companies that you touched upon then, one of the positions you've had in the portfolio for quite a while is Afterpay, which of course has, has, has been a stunning investment for the portfolio. However, over the recent months, it's probably been a little bit softer. Um, how are you currently thinking about that, particularly in light of PayPal's move into the area? Um, so I suppose, well, the first thing is we've you know, taken out many times the original investment. So we're um, playing with house money to a degree. Um, but nevertheless, on its own merits, um, you know, it's up whatever it is, at least 50 fold. Um, and, you know, it's much easier to the first 50 is going to be a lot easier than the second 50 fold. So um, that's a, a slight negative, obviously. Um, I continue to think that the, the model still seems to be the best, of, you know, and people categorise them as all the same. But there isn't anybody that has exactly the same model uh, as Afterpay where um, it's just so friendly to the consumer. So they don't, they don't do credit checks, so it doesn't affect... If you, if you don't pay, it doesn't affect your credit rate. If you don't pay, they don't sue you for the debt. All that happens is they cut you off from the service. Um, the average afterpay customer only has $150 outstanding. So it's not as if people are going to be taught, put into bankruptcy for afterpay, not only because it's only $150, bucks, but afterpay won't pursue them for the debt anyway. And you compare that with um, the average credit card holder um, has a limit of $10,000. So there's much more consumer risk that somebody will do the wrong thing and get themselves into trouble with that. The average credit card holder has about 3,600, uh, 3, I think, in debt. And I think it's about 60% of people with credit cards don't pay it off every month. So that means 60% of people are paying whatever it is, 20, 22% on $3,600 
Um, so it's costing uh, the average person $700 a year in interest, whereas the average afterpay person actually isn't at risk of any money. And to the extent that they want to maintain the service, okay, it's $150. So it is such a consumer-friendly um, product relative to credit cards. You know, one, you know, two of the most dangerous words in investing are paradigm shift, but it really does feel like this could be a paradigm shift. Why would anybody have a credit card? Terrific. Frank, um, there's been a little bit of talk in markets, and I think you may have alluded to it in a recent uh, note to um, your investors in terms of the rotation from growth to value. Perhaps you could explain what that is and what you see going on and, and how you're handling that for the listeners, please. Yeah, well, you could almost, people have written books about value investing and so on, but broadly people tend to mean uh, value stocks are ones that are trading not at a huge multiple of their book value and not at high PEs and so on. Um, and clearly uh, with a growth stock, when you buy it, you're buying it as much because you think it's going to be much more profitable in 10 years than it is now. So you are making a much bigger statement about your belief about the future. And obviously the future is always uncertain. And if you are going to try and value cash flows 10 years in the future, you've got to discount them back. And how you discount them back relates to current interest rates. So what has happened is that growth stocks have gone up a lot in part because interest rates are so low. So logically, the lower the interest rates are, the less discount you apply to the distant cash flow. So that helps growth versus value, if you like. Um, and so, you know, the interest rates on US 10-year bonds have gone up from whatever it was, 70 basis points, they've gone up a percent or something in the last six months. So that has very logically meant that the uh, people are putting less value on distant cash flows. So that's brought the relative value of um, uh, growth investments down a bit, and that's perfectly logical. But also I think there's a bit of an effect that, um, you know, if once a particular style or a sector gets a bit of momentum going, then people jump on and they keep riding it until it stops. And for whatever reason, uh, the rise of growth investments, and it's probably part of the interest rate, but it stopped, so it came back. So therefore, people say, okay, well, I'll sell some of my growth investments and put it into value. Um, but the difficulty is that so often, if a, if a company is trading on a low ratio of book value or a low PE, it's because it's a business that's not doing very well. And these days, it may be you know, more often because it's being disrupted by some young growth stock. So I do think um, you've got to be more careful perhaps than you used to be 
about value stocks in the sense that if, if a stock has got cheaper, it may not just be the random movement of stocks. You know, stocks go up and down. Uh, but it may not be random. You've got to look at it and say, well, why did it go down? You can't just assume that because something's gone down, it's going to bounce back up. I think, you know, the rate of change is has been increasing uh, and is likely to increase. So, so you've got to be ever more careful of the, the companies that look like value because uh, it may be that there's something fundamentally wrong with the business. The classic value trap. And Frank, have, yeah. has that led you to make any changes within your portfolio? Well, look, I've always had a great bias for this portfolio. This has always been a portfolio that invests in things that are growing faster than the economy. Um, probably the change that's happened in the last couple of years is the number of stocks in the portfolio where it used to be a minimum, the mandate was a minimum of 20 stocks, but I sort of thought if I went above 20, I wasn't taking the hard decisions that I should be to, to get rid of something. Whereas now I'm happier to let the number of stocks float up a bit to the mid-20s on the basis that there is greater uncertainty and therefore it makes sense to have more diversification. So that's really been, been the change. Terrific. Um, look, if we can maybe pivot a little bit out of individual stock stories and positioning and maybe talk a little bit more around how you think or go about managing the money in this area. Um, you've got an interesting role in that you're both uh, advisor to clients and also a portfolio manager, if you'd like. Um, what mistakes do you see personal or individual clients or families or foundations making in managing money? And equally, what typical fund manager mistakes do you commonly see that allow you to add value given the position you're in? Well, I think um, probably the biggest mistake, uh, which in fact you alluded to earlier for private investors, is that they fiddle with things too much. And so, you know, there is there is noise and the mere fact that a fund hasn't had a great 12 months, that's not a reason to chuck it out unless you think that there's something wrong with the thesis. And there is a bit of a tendency for people to sell last year's losers and buy the things that they didn't have last year that did really well and then just normal mean reversion means almost certainly if you if you buy last year's winners and sell last year's, you're going to do exactly the wrong thing. So, I mean, I think a lot of the best conversations I have with clients is when I tell them not to do anything, you know. Look at the portfolio a bit less often um, and don't react too much just to what is noise and short-term things if the long-term thesis isn't broken. And, and how do you manage the issue there that a lot of people see motion equaling progress in that unless they see something being done, they, they assume um, nothing's being done or the outcome isn't favourable for them? Well, I mean, I try to make up for that by sending out notes regularly to clients so that 
they know they know that activity is taking place in the sense that the portfolio is very closely supervised and every day I think about every stock in the portfolio and I look at all the news and I think about it and I'll read anything that I think is relevant to it. Um, but the only action takes place when I think that the the, the, some, the change to the thesis and that happens far less often. So then, you know, the key portfolio, the average holding period is, is seven years. Uh, and surprised, I mean, I'm sort of surprised even in the last year that hasn't really gone up much. In fact, I don't think it has gone up. It stayed pretty much the same at about 15% uh, turnover over the last 12 months. So I think it's um, the activity is to be thinking and supervising, but then only actually changing the portfolio when something calls you to question either your thesis or you think, I mean, potentially if you think that the, the thesis is still good but the fund manager or the company chief executive is, is not managing that mandate well, um, then that's another reason to do it. But um, that happens relatively seldom. Frank, thank you. That's been fantastic. Um, if there's any other point or question I haven't asked that you think is pertinent to listeners right at this juncture, um, I'd love you to add it. Um, if not, we can call it stumps. No, I think you've covered uh, most of the important things that are happening at the moment. I actually, sorry, one thing, in terms of the mistakes that the fund managers make, I think the real problem that fund managers have is they are hostage to quarterly reporting. So except for a few that have established a really strong reputation such that people don't worry about their quarterly performance, most fund managers, they're very worried that they have one or two bad quarters. Um, they will be, you know, taken off the asset allocators' lists and people withdraw funds. Um, so they can't afford to take the three to five year view, or it's, it, it's very much more difficult for them to do it without risking uh, the health of the fund. So that's, there's a career risk which fund managers have, which is it, it's, a, it's a problem for them. So it's not that they do something wrong. It is, uh, you know, most of them are extremely uh, diligent and well-resourced and very thoughtful about what they do. But it's a difficult environment to operate in if your short-term performance means you don't even get to see the long-term, to see whether it turned out correct. Understood and, and well made. Frank, thank you very much. Always enlightening. Yeah. Hopefully we can uh, keep these to a six-monthly routine or similar and keep getting these updates. Hopefully it's in the office before long. Thanks. Yeah. A lot, Frank. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.